Well, many years ago now, when Heidi and I were first married uh, and living in Southern California, I would often listen to the radio on my drive to and from work. And of course, back then, I'm aging myself, but the podcast hadn't been invented. So you had relatively few options of what you could listen to. Uh, and so, particularly during the times that I would be commuting, and, you know, I have to say that I, I think there's a somewhat morbid part of us that is attracted to disasters somehow. And uh, one such series of disasters was actually regularly aired on one of the local Christian radio stations. Um, and although I knew what was going to happen, I would allow my uh, curiosity to overwhelm my rational thinking. And I would tune the radio to a so-called Christian counseling show. Being a biblical counseling major, uh, it wouldn't take long for me to hear something that was so wretchedly and disgustingly wrong that it kind of made my blood boil. I just could not believe the terrible advice that would be, was being so readily spewed by the hosts who claimed to follow Christ and claimed to offer biblical counsel. And although there were, of course, a variety of topics covered, and not all of it was problematic, but uh, the area that was most often addressed seeming in these call-in counseling shows was some sort of marital problems. I was actually surprised by the number of people who claimed to be Christians, again, who would call in and essentially ask the hosts to affirm their unbiblical reasons for divorce. And I'm sure it happened, but I don't remember those hosts ever actually saying, no, that's not a valid reason. They would essentially encourage people to ignore the scriptures and ultimately dishonored Christ. I heard them say things like, well, God just really wants you to be happy. And if you don't see a road to happiness with your spouse, then that's a signal that you shouldn't continue down that destructive path. Or if your husband doesn't validate and provide for your emotional needs, then he has basically abandoned the marriage and you're free to leave. Uh, another one would be, this is common, we're called by God to love God, to love him and to love those he has brought into our lives, but none of that works unless you love yourself first. So if in your marriage, if your marriage is preventing you from loving yourself, then you will never be able to have a fulfilling relationship with God or others. And they would use that, again, as, as an affirmation that it was okay for that so-called Christian to continue down the path of divorce. Sadly, the train wreck in thinking that was represented there on the radio program is prominent in the Christian church today. It's sad. And of course, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. That was going on 20 years ago. It's still going on today. And guess what? It was going on in Christ's day as well. In the uh, chapter that we come to today, we will see Jesus challenge the prominent cultural understanding and interpretation of marriage with the truth. And I hope we will see his challenge was as revolutionary back then as it is today. And, if, and we are called by that knowledge, we are called to have a right understanding of God's design for marriage. We are called to live out that calling in our own marriages and to faithfully teach and exemplify these truths to those whom God has brought into our lives. One other item that I just want to stress here at the outset is the staggering importance of this issue. You know, we, we live in a day in a culture where marriage is under attack constantly, and it almost can get to the point where it's white noise, where we're not necessarily seeing it for what it is. But what I, what I just want to think about is why is Satan attacking this institution so vehemently? Why is this always on the menu for him to come after? And I think we should remember that marriage was the very first human institution that God established. 
Marriage and the family is the very foundation and building block of all human civilization and government. And if Satan can destroy that institution, then everything else will follow. Realize that the attacks on marriage that we see in our culture, in our government, in the world governments, and even in the broader so-called Christian church are really just a continuing vain attempt to eject God and his influence from the world. So we who know the truth stand at the front line of the battle and have the solemn and noble responsibility to help make the truth known to the world. So this issue is absolutely, for us as Christians, it should be paramount in importance. So with those things, let's get into the passage today. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be covering the first 12 verses today. But before we get into Jesus' teaching on divorce, as the passage leads us here, sorry, I've got a, something coming up on my screen that's not going to co cooperate. We'll deal with that in a minute. Um, but first, what I want to do is I want to consider the historical context. My computer has been misbehaving this morning. <laughs> Sorry, give us a second. All right, there we go. So the historical context, and we're going to see that in the very first verse here, uh, which there we read, getting up, he, meaning Jesus, went from there, and by the way, we'll talk about it, but the from there is Galilee. He went from there, Galilee, to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he began once more to teach them. So in that last section that we covered at the end of Mark 9 there, the last time we met, Jesus was still teaching in Galilee. So Mark 10.1 is a transition verse that actually encapsulates about six months of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry after concluding his Galilean ministry. So while Mark is actually largely silent on this six-month timeline, this is really all that he records about that. Uh, there is quite a lot that's recorded in Luke and John. In fact, there's five chapters in John and nine chapters in Luke. So it's quite a bit of material that's addressed. But Mark simply summarized that time by briefly explaining where Jesus went. Now, I do think it's helpful to understand some of what occurred during that time frame because it marks a major shift in Jesus's ministry. So Jesus spent something like 15 to 16 months primarily ministering in and around Galilee. And that 15-month timeline is where Mark, or time frame, is where Mark concentrated the bulk of his writing. And the remainder of Mark's book focuses really on the two weeks before and leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and some of the events surrounding Jesus' resurrection. But during that intervening six months of time where Mark is largely silent, um, it's where Jesus ended his Galilean ministry and then began his journey to Jerusalem, that final journey to Jerusalem that we'll talk about here in just a second. But there's a number of key events that occurred during that intervening time. So I have, I'm going to put up here on the screen a bit of a timeline. So if you look at the timeline here, I've started it in October of AD 29, and either at the very tail end of September or the first part of October, uh, Jesus would have gone down to the Feast of Tabernacles. He would have left Galilee and went down to the Feast of Tabernacles, and that marks the end of his Galilean ministry. From that point on, he's going to spend a few months, or a couple of months actually, ministering around Judea, in the region of Judea there, 
and uh, then he's going to go to the Feast of Dedication. By the way, that, that time for that Feast of Tabernacles, that's recorded for us in John 7. Uh, then there's some things that occur in, in and around Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, so we see that in John 7 through 9 and Luke 10 through 13. And then there's the Feast of Dedication that John records for us in John 10. But then at the end of John 10, uh, John just references references very briefly that Jesus went from the region around Jerusalem over to the region of Perea. And so you see all here on the map here that Jerusalem's down here towards the bottom, but then Perea is this red shaded area. So Mark refers to that area here in, in verse 1 as the area beyond the Jordan. So whenever you see that phrase in the New Testament, beyond the Jordan, he's talking really about this primary area. And so Jesus spent uh, a couple of months ministering there in the region of Perea. And, um, and then we'll see, we'll talk about uh, right after that is the raising of Lazarus. And then after that point, Jesus goes into hiding in the small town of Ephraim. But I want to look in a little bit more detail at a couple of these things that occurred. I mentioned that Jesus traveled down to Jerusalem to attend that Feast of Tabernacles back in either very late September or early October. Um, and that's actually recorded for us in John 7, as I mentioned. But what I want to point out is that there's really two key dynamics that are at play during that time frame. And we'll see, uh, we'll see Jesus actually using and leveraging those couple of dynamics to his benefit, very wisely, very carefully leveraging those. So it's interesting there at the uh, time of the Feast of Tabernacles, um, and, and by the way, I, I hope someday we'll get to go through the book of John. Um, we've gone through Luke recently, now we're in Mark, hopefully John will come up at some point, um, but John's a wonderful book, and, and some of the things that John brings out, like about this time, is some of the high drama. It's almost like a suspense movie or suspense novel that you see as, as things are beginning to develop. So uh, the first dynamic that we see is that, obviously, it's not a surprise, but the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead, and so... There, it, around that time frame when he was going down to the feast, we're actually told that he didn't go down publicly because the Jewish leaders were wanting to kill him. So instead, he goes down to the feast privately. So that, the first dynamic was just that growing animosity and hatred towards Jesus leading up to the eventual conclusion that they were going to kill him. Although they had already decided to kill him, they keep deciding to kill him time and time again. Um, but we'll see that, that fervor for Jesus' death growing, so to speak. But then the other dynamic that's interesting that Jesus really leveraged to his benefit was his popularity with the crowds. Now we're told in John that the crowds couldn't make up their mind about Jesus. They, they still weren't sure uh, what to really think. And, and we see some of the ways that the crowd were thinking through that that's recorded for us in, in John. But so here in this situation where the crowds, he's popular, but they're not really sure about him. And then the Jewish leaders want to kill him. And then Jesus shows up at that Feast of Tabernacles in the middle of the feast, goes to the temple and begins to teach and in a sense stirs things up to even more and more but the jewish leaders are technically unable to act because of jesus's popularity with the crowds so that's so that's what some of the dynamics that was going on during that intervening six months and so we'll see during that six months that jesus continued to teach continued to challenge the Jewish leaders and, and, and really show them up time and time again. And the crowds, there's just this sense of increasing popularity, but increasing questions. They still just weren't sure completely what to think about Jesus. So, um, as I mentioned, he spent two or three months 
teaching around Jerusalem, which is the region of Judea that Mark referenced here in verse 1. And then he moved to the region of Perea, as I was mentioning, that area beyond the Jordan that uh, Mark references. Now, that was actually a very strategic move on the part of Jesus because the region of Perea was governed by Herod the Tetrarch, who hated the Jews, and the Jewish leaders really had no jurisdiction there. So Jesus was able to kind of go over there and, in a sense, be, have, a, have a sense of protection uh, where they couldn't come after him directly, although they certainly tried a few different things, including trying to convince Jesus to come back to Jerusalem, probably so they could arrest him. So Jesus continued to teach in that area for two to three months until that very well-known story occurred, which is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. That event, the raising of Lazarus, took place about six weeks before Jesus' crucifixion, and that event absolutely galvanized both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as if they aren't, weren't already convinced they wanted to kill him. But it, at that point, they were going to kill him at all costs. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who was around the crowds, whatever. They were going to get him. And that's recorded for us in John chapter 11, verses 53 through 54, which is immediately following Jesus, or the raising of Lazarus, there was a council that was held, and um, the Jewish leaders decided at that point, pronounced that they were going to kill Jesus. So verse 53 of John 11 says, so from that day on, they, meaning the Jewish leadership, planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. So Jesus here, we're told, went essentially into hiding into this small town of Ephraim. And if you see on the map, I've got it. It's just a few miles north of Jerusalem. And he stays there for about a month, uh, maybe three weeks to a month. And after that, he determined that it was time to go to Jerusalem. But what's interesting is... Uh, he didn't go just straight down to Jerusalem. He actually went up north through Samaria and then met up with the caravan, the crowds of people that would be coming from Galilee down for the feast in Jerusalem. So that, uh, that would have been about a week before the triumphal entry. Um, so that week as Jesus was traveling down with the crowds, to Jerusalem. And of course, there's a number of key events that occurred. Uh, I have it on there, maybe a little hard to see, but there was the 10 leopards that were cleansed probably right before he connected up with the uh, caravan that was traveling down. But there's the parable of the rich young ruler that occurs. There's the healing of the blind beggar Bartimaeus in Jericho, and then the calling of Zacchaeus also in Jericho. That would have been the calling of Zacchaeus would have been likely on Thursday night uh, before the Passover. Uh, and so and then Jesus made his way ultimately to Bethany, which is where he stayed during the Passion Week. So I think all of that is very helpful. It's helpful to me to understand what is that larger context, what's the historical time frame that is going on. So that all begs the question, when exactly does this story that we're going to look at, which is Jesus's teaching on divorce here in Mark 10, when does that take place? And we're not 100% sure, but there are some things that we know. We know that it had to have been at the very least when Jesus was ministering in Perea. So it had, have been, had to have been somewhere in this time frame, but there are actually some language that's used in the verse there, and uh, many commentators actually believe that it was taking place during Jesus's travel um, to the down with the caravan of Galilean Jews to the Passover. And so there's some support from that. That actually does make sense, although we can't be uh, completely sure. So however it was, but the interesting part here is the next two uh, stories that take place here in Mark 10 are absolutely when Jesus was on that final journey. We know that from a, a 
if we stitch together all of the narratives from the various Gospels. So this could very well have been a teaching that took place on that final journey from Jesus, or that Jesus took to, towards Jerusalem. So looking at that verse again, Mark 10.1 says, Getting up, he went from there, meaning Galilee, to the region of Judea, where he spent a couple of months, and beyond the Jordan, where he spent a couple of months, and then we're told crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And so that those words, again and once more, kind of sounds like it had been a while since Jesus was teaching. And that's why some commentators actually think that this took place likely in that final journey towards Jerusalem. Although, again, we can't be 100% sure. At the very least, it would have been while Jesus was teaching there in Perea. And if that's the case, then this is the only story that Mark would have been, that Mark would have recorded during that time of Jesus pretty much from leaving Galilee all the way up into his uh, final journey towards Jerusalem. So either way, we're told that the crowds came to Jesus and Jesus, as was his custom, began to teach. And so the thing that he's going to address for them and for us is this incredibly important topic of Jesus's perspective or view on marriage and divorce. So let's look at that together. So uh, beginning in verse 2, what we're going to see is a controversial question. And the, really the sum of that question is whether or not divorce was allowed under the Old Testament law. So let's read that. So Mark 10 verse 2 says, Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, I also want to read, um, because there's another part of the question that Matthew records for us, and it, there, this may have been and probably was actually two different questions from two different people around the same topic. Uh, but Matthew 19, verse 3 says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So, Note that for any reason at all that Matthew adds. Now, to start out looking at this, this was not a random question. Uh, the Pharisees intended this to be a test. We're told that both in Mark and in Matthew. They were trying to catch Jesus saying something that would have given them, them the ability to somehow malign him with the crowds. Of course, the Pharisees never learned, and this one blew up in their faces, just like all the others. And Jesus deftly and brilliantly showed them up, and in the process, outlined God's perspective of marriage and divorce. It's actually kind of cool. Uh, Jesus was the one who performed the first marriage ceremony of Adam and Eve, and thus establishing the institution of marriage, and so we have the opportunity and privilege to learn from him what his perspective is on that union. So not only was this question, was this a question that was intended to somehow trap Jesus, but the question was based on a very prominent and often debated topic amongst the Pharisees and rabbis. Note that Mark here records the question, as I mentioned, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then with Matthew, adding that for any reason at all. So there was an ongoing debate as to whether, as to whether the law allowed uh, was effectively a no-fault divorce, which means you could just kind of end the marriage for no reason or any reason, uh, or if there, was, if there was only specific reasons that could be Allowed. And so there was that ongoing debate um, where there was a more conservative group, and the more conservative and less popular was that divorce was only permitted by Moses in the cases of adultery. And as we'll see, I think that's actually the correct view. Uh, but the debate raged on uh, whether or not there were other things that could be val considered as a valid reason. And so by far the more prominent views 
were that there were a ton of different reasons that were valid for divorce. And so the key Old Testament text that they were referencing, and we'll see them reference here, is in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to put it here on the screen. It's kind of a long passage, um, but I think it's good to see the whole thing um, because there's some things that we can learn from it. But Deuteronomy 24, 1 says, when a man takes a wife, and by the way, notice the construction here. There's a when and an and, 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 and. In this, it's, we're giving, being given a specific situation. Uh, this would be case law, so to speak, under the Old Testament. When this situation occurs, and this, and this, and this, and this, then the conclusion is this. So notice what the conclusion and actual command is here as we go through this. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife then so notice that was a long if and 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 statement Here's the then, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the key phrase that was debated here among the rabbis was the, the wording around that he has found some indecency in her there in verse 1. Now, Literally, in the Hebrew, that means the, it's saying the nakedness of a thing, which admittedly is a little vague. Um, and that's where some of the challenges with this came. So the more conservative rabbis, as I mentioned, would say that this is a reference to unfaithfulness. And I think they're right. While more liberal groups took great liberties with saying, oh, this could be many different things. So they would see, say things like, if your wife burns dinner... Uh, that then, you know, that's indecent. Uh, or another one, it's interesting, is talking too loud so the neighbors hear her. That could be a, a, a valid reason for divorce. Or wearing her hair down around the house. Uh-oh. Uh, or if a man is, or if a man even found another woman who is more attractive. They would argue about these things and say that could also be a, a valid reason. So, Thinking about all of that, that was what was really behind this question that they're asking Jesus, is what, what Jesus do you say is really the point of divorce? Now, all of this controversy, as I mentioned, is based on a misapplication of what's in this text and the larger teaching of Scripture. Uh, it's interesting that the law here is not, about, is not primarily about providing a reason for divorce. Again, it's giving us a scenario. If this, and, 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 then the command is at the end. So really what this is saying, or what this law is about, is it's regulating some of what can happen and what some of what God forbids when divorce is occurring. So for example, uh, and specifically this law prohibits things like trading wives back and forth. Um, <coughs> that could have been a prominent practice of the day uh, where you write your wife a divorce, send her to somebody else, trade, and then trade back. That couldn't happen. That was absolutely forbidden by this law. So again, this, this law is not prescribing divorce specifically. It is regulating the practice. So again, the question here was even, we see in it, a, a misunderstanding and misapplication of this law, and Jesus will deal with that. So we see here, next, Jesus' redirection. And I think this is great. Um, so there in verse 3, it says, And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? So again, Jesus takes them back to the law. What does the Bible say? What does it say? Not what you think it says, not what somebody else says they thought it says, 
not what science or experts or whatever else says. What does the Bible say? It's actually one of the most important questions that we can ask about any topic. What does the Bible say? And then what we see next is the Pharisees' revealing answer, which is basically, I, you know, I kind of get the sense of these school children or whatever saying, teacher said we could. <laughs> um, and so verse 4, it says, they say Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So the Pharisees answered Jesus' question by taking a piece of that Deuteronomy 24 passage and then making it say something that it doesn't actually say. Um, it doesn't say that Moses permitted a divorce and so on. Although, again, there's some, we'll, we'll cover that in a little bit, but uh, there's, uh, there is some indication that this law was allowing for some divorce, but they were taking it way too far into prescribing divorce. That's not actually what Moses said. Again, if we look at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a, a writ of divorce and so on, and puts her in, in her hands and sends her out of the house. Again, it's when this is occurring, not that it should occur, or here's how you can make it occur. That's not what's being said. So, as I mentioned, the only prohibition here is that a husband was not allowed to take back a former wife if she had been remarried. That's the primary intent of this passage. Uh, so, again, this is more of a regulation of the divorce that God knew was going to be occurring any, anyway. And also, I don't have time to get into it here, but this reference to indecency is almost certainly a reference to adultery. They were taking liberties that were far too great with it. Um, so, and that one exception is actually repeated in the New Testament by Jesus himself in the parallel passage in Matthew. So it makes sense that that was the one permittable reason under the Old Testament law. Now, there's another exception that we'll look at as well here uh, as we get into it further. But, but God knew that adultery was going to be a problem in Israel because of Israel's inherent sinfulness. So he gave this law to help regulate that practice. But also... What we see is that their answer clearly outlined for us what the prominent Jewish view of divorce was, which aligns with what we've already discussed. But their insinuation was that Moses allowed for divorce for any reason as long as the wife was given an official written document of divorcement. That was really the requirement that they said is you just had to make it official. And by the way, we can even see this viewpoint reflected in the story in Matthew again with the disciples. So when they understood the teaching that God intends for marriage to be permanent, Jesus is going to go through that here in a bit, um, Matthew 19.10 says, The disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. When they understood what Jesus really intended, what marriage was really about, they were saying, Whoa, are you serious? Is it that big of a deal? I don't think we should get married. Um, so they were grasping the true gravity of what marriage was all about. So what Jesus outlined was so revolutionary in the, cultural, in the culture of the day that even his disciples were shocked. So I think that's important to help see. So next we see Jesus' public correction. The the point of it here is that God intends for marriage to be permanent. Now, he also provides, as a result, several different things that we can learn about marriage. So let's look at verse 5 through 9. It says, But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, meaning that commandment that they quoted about Moses allowing divorce if, if they provided a writ of divorcement. Um, so Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. Jesus is now quoting from Genesis. Um, so God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So let's work our way through this. And so we're first going to see that Jesus points out that the real reason that God permitted and regulated divorce was because of the inherent sinfulness and hardness of heart of the uh, people of Israel. So note here, Jesus didn't tell the Pharisees that they got it all wrong. It wasn't entirely inaccurate. The problem was that they completely focused on and misinterpreted this passage, effectively ignoring the rest of Scripture. What Jesus goes to is he'll refer back to Genesis 1, where the actual institution of marriage was established. And the uh, Pharisees and the prominent culture of the day didn't do that, apparently. So notice that divorce wasn't permitted here, based on what Jesus said, so that the Israelites could do whatever they wanted. It wasn't, it wasn't God saying, well, I just want people to be happy so they can get divorced if they need to. No, the reason that it was even allowed was because of their hardness, because of their sin, because of the sin that God knew would take place. So this, this allowance for divorce is ultimately an expression of God's mercy. It's not an encouragement for divorce. It's an indictment upon Israel. God allowing divorce was a shameful travesty, not a privilege. But they were treating it like a privilege, missing the point entirely. So next we'll see the biblical correction. And there's several different things that we can learn from this as Jesus talks through it. First off, that God ordained the institution of marriage at creation. So this means that God's design for an inauguration of marriage preceded the fall even, and at that point was perfect. Note here that Jesus appeals to God's original design for marriage that took place before the Mosaic law. So in a sense, this supersedes the Mosaic law. Next, we'll see that God intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman, period. I don't even know why there's a debate. It's incredibly clear. It's not my words. It's what God said. People may not like me because I'm repeating it, but ultimately it's God that they have an issue with. Another, another one that we see there uh, is that each new marriage is establishes a new family unit. So look at it there in verse 6. It says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So the idea of leaving there is that the son is moving out of, and they didn't always move out, but the point is that they, he was no longer under the direct authority and control of his parents. Uh, it was a new family unit that was being created. So each marriage establishes that new family unit. Secondly, or not secondly, what is it? Fourthly, uh, we see that uh, in a marriage, two people become united and are viewed by God as a single union. That's what it's talking about when it says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Uh, this is not new math, but the equation is one plus one equals one, right? This means that a husband and wife no longer act independently. It's not about me anymore. It's about us as it relates to me and my wife. 
of course, does not eliminate the individual person or personalities or even individual culpability for sin. However, it does establish this permanent union between the husband and wife that God never intended to be split apart. It's very important. Next, we'll see that God sovereignly acts in each biblical marriage to join the man and woman together. This is astounding. It says there in verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Just let that sink in. What God has joined together. It's huge. This means that for those who are married, that God sovereignly intervened in your lives to cause you to meet, to notice each other, to talk, to fall in love, hopefully, and ultimately decide to get married. Sometimes it doesn't follow, follow that exact trajectory, and that's okay. doesn't matter. At the end, when two people are married, uh, that is an expression of God bringing them together, using a variety of means to do so, but all the while, it was his intended plan and purpose. So we could actually say that every biblical marriage is made in heaven. This means that marriage extends beyond a mere earthly legal contract. It's much more than that. It's, in a sense, imbued with an exalted and divine purpose. If you are married, you have been granted a lofty gift, and the responsibility or there is a responsibility, and you have the remarkable privilege of putting God's gracious plans on display and being a part of his carrying out, or carrying out his sovereign plans in your spouse's life. This should cause you to look at your spouse a little differently, or maybe a lot differently. Being married is a high and lofty calling. Many problems in marriage stem from having a low view of marriage. Jesus here is calling us to have a high view of marriage. So important. We can see next that because each marriage is sovereignly ordained, it is intended by God to be permanent. God does not change. That's part of his essential nature and character. So he does not decide one day to have two people come together and then decide the next that, oh, that was a bad idea. That's not the way that God works. So, I mean, there are the verse, whatever God, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So someone who decides to separate what God has brought together is ultimately declaring that he or she believes that God is not wise or that God is not good or that God is not morally right. So again, this is a clear statement from our creator and Lord. Let no man separate. It cannot be more serious. It cannot be more direct. And it there's no other way to understand it. It is absolutely clear that God intends for marriage to be permanent. So bringing our attention back to the scene here, I can only imagine the jaws hitting the ground of both the Pharisees and the crowd that were there hearing Jesus that day. Certainly this was a drop-the-mic moment. There are many sort of drop-the-mic moments um, but this one, I can, I can just imagine that for a few seconds after Jesus made that declaration that there was complete stunned silence. It's a huge statement. Jesus had just accused the Pharisees and all those who participated in the rampant divorce culture of the day of directly contravening God's revealed will. It's a huge statement. Now, I do want to, as we are talking about this, about the fact that God intends for marriage to be permanent, we also need to recognize that there are a couple of exceptions, a couple of biblical-based exceptions 
when God allows for divorce among believers. So there are only two exceptions. Note that Mark does not mention those exceptions here, but Matthew records one of those legitimate exceptions uh, when divorce is permitted in the parallel passage in Matthew 19. So in Matthew 19, 9, it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So the word translated here as immorality refers to illicit sexual fornication outside of marriage. So really and truly, it's referring to adultery in all of its forms. So Jesus here in this section confirms that adultery is a potentially legitimate reason for divorce. The second exception we don't find here in either the Matthew or Mark passage, but it's, it's uh, found in 1 Corinthians 7. By the way, I think I'm getting back behind here on the screen. Um, so the second exception would be abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And so that's recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not going to go through that in detail for the sake of time. I'll let you read it. Um, but there is a command that if an unbelieving spouse wants out of the marriage, then the believing spouse is to allow the unbeliever to, be, to leave and be released from the marriage. Now, just to be clear, what's not here is it does not give the believing spouse the permission to initiate that divorce. Instead, um, if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then they are to allow that to happen. And that's it. Those are the only two exceptions. God intends for marriage to be permanent. And as you can see, even the exceptions are only related to seriously sinful situations with either adultery, which is a betrayal of God's design for marriage, or an unbeliever who has no desire to follow the Lord anyway. So that is Jesus' perspective on marriage. It's so important that we as his children learn to properly understand and appreciate his grand and gracious design. After this discussion, we'll see that Jesus went into the house where he was staying and the stunned disciples questioned him further. So we'll see Jesus' private reiteration and the point there is that divorce without biblically permitted grounds is adultery. So uh, Mark 10, verses verse 10 through 12 says, In the house again, the disciples begin questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Now, just in case there's any misunderstanding, Jesus is very clear here with the disciples that the scenario of someone divorcing his wife and marrying someone else is guilty before God of committing adultery. In God's eyes, an unbiblical divorce and remarriage is ultimately adultery. Now, the obvious exceptions here to what Jesus said we just covered. So Jesus can't mean in those exceptions. That's not his point. Um, what we need to understand is that when anyone divorces his wife or spouse for an unbiblical reason and marries another, commits adultery. Now, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, but the disciples got the point. So Matthew 19, 10, I already read this, but says the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Now, Obviously, this is yet another one of the disciples' big overreactions to what Jesus was saying. Um, but it does help to drive home the seriousness of what Jesus was teaching. There is no question, there is no legitimate question that the things that we talked about here are exactly what Jesus said and taught. God's design is for marriage to be permanent. And divorce is only allowed with two very specific exceptions. What's 
uh, interesting here is when the disciples made that comment about it's maybe it's better not to marry, Jesus uh, answered them, and, he, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but he answered them, and he basically confirmed that hearing this truth was very difficult and that only those who are chosen by God can properly understand it and appreciate it. And he also affirmed after that that celibacy is a valid option for some people. Um, now, he did not exalt celibacy over marriage in any way. In fact, I, I think the opposite is likely true, although, again, he did confirm that in certain cases that is the right move. In some cases, for certain people, it is better not to marry. But that's not the case for everyone. In fact, I would argue that's not the case for most people. So it's a very serious issue, and the disciples got the point. And I just don't think that there's any other way to understand this. Now, I want to talk through a few things um, from a lessons perspective, because uh, these are important. And by the way, these are not exhaustive. Uh, I think we could sit and talk for several hours about the implications of these truths. But I do want to spend some time considering them. So number one, we've talked about this, that God bringing two people together in marriage is, a much, is much higher than an earthly legal contract. It is a divine transaction and a permanently sealed binding declaration by God. We should let that sink in. It's huge. It's very important. But I want to consider that, that as we look at marriage, that there are people that are in different situations and different stages of life. So for those who are married, God, who does not make mistakes, has sovereignly ordained your marriage. He brought you and your spouse together. I let this sink in. He brought you and your spouse together for a divine purpose. That's huge. Think about that. Um, again, you should be looking at your spouse a little differently as a result. Doesn't mean that it's all roses and butterflies. It is not. It's tough. It's difficult. But just understanding and grasping this component changes the way that we naturally incline to think. That I am married to my spouse because that is what God designed. And because it happened, it is part of his revealed will for me and my wife. That's a big deal. This should lead us to be thankful for our spouse, for the gift of grace that he or she is. Again. There are challenges that sometimes occur relating to sin in marriages where this can be very difficult. Another one here, this is obvious that we must be faithful to our spouses in every area, both mentally and physically. If Realize that if you're failing in this area, it is because you are failing to properly grasp, or one of the reasons is because you're failing to properly grasp God's exalted and holy design for marriage, and your view of marriage is too low. So important. And again, these are things that we, we're all sinners. We have to work through these things, and it's helpful to understand and know the truth. How do we combat sin? By knowing the truth. Well, this is what God is leading us to think through. Another one, be faithful to submit to God's divinely ordained roles for your marriage. If he ordained your marriage, if he brought the two of you together, guess what? He's also given you some information about how you are to live together with your spouse. Husbands, you need to lovingly lead your wives. In some cases, that means you need to step up. Not trying to step on toes, but it's true. Wives, you need to respectfully submit to your husbands. That means that in some cases, you may need to step down to allow him to lead, encourage him to lead as he is called to do. 
Another one to think through is that God hates divorce. We know this. He said that in the Old Testament. But it's clear here as well that God does not permit Christian divorce except in those two very specific exceptions. Therefore, divorce must not be a part of your vocabulary or thinking. What God has joined together, you must not separate. And you must not go down the path of even thinking that's a remote possibility. You know, there was a, a marriage that I went to uh, some number of years ago. Uh, and of course, in the marriage vows and all of that, it talks about being faithful and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, those vows. Well, he actually changed some of it. And he's, he said as part of his vows, I will not divorce you. You know what? That's a great way to put it. Um, and that's how we, as believers, must think that we will not divorce our spouses. Obviously, there's the couple of exceptions. For those of you who aren't married, do not enter into marriage lightly or flippantly. It's a big deal. Um, if, if you marry the wrong kind of person, now, obviously, we have to admit and understand that God is still sovereignly involved in that process as well. But imagine the heartache. Imagine the pain of not actually knowing the person that you will potentially marry. Uh, young people get into marriage or get into relationships with rose-colored glasses all the time. They need to stop and check. Look at, them, look at things biblically and carefully because there's not an easy out. Another one, do not engage in activities that God has specifically designed and intended for marriage. Don't do it. Of course, it's not easy, but if you're failing with self-control now, realize that you will continue to have a self-control problem after you're married. And further realize that part of the problem is that your view of marriage now is too low. I'd encourage you to, to bring about and understand that high view of marriage. Another one, and to do that, you have to study and carefully learn God's design for marriage and then pray that God would open your eyes and his perfect timing to his right person for you. I, I think that's important to his right person for you. And then pray that God would prepare you now to become the kind of husband or wife that brings him glory and honor. Start now. Start learning to lead now. Start working through in your mind what that looks like. Study the scriptures. Get advice from others. Uh, there's lots of different resources that are available. Now, for those of you that have experienced divorce or possibly even initiated an unbiblical divorce in the past, um, one of the things that I'll say here is these, these situations are incredibly complicated. We know that. We understand that. And really, if you need help understanding how to properly navigate those situations, resources are available. Please reach out. Reach out to the church. Talk with Terry. Talk with Vikram, or one of the other pastoral staff or elders. Um, all of them are, are so, would so love to be able to help you through that. The key point is that it is not too late. You have an opportunity uh, to, to navigate these, through, these things through in a Christ-honoring way now. And that's so important. Another thing to just, uh, as Tom said, I really appreciated what Tom said in his marriage where it said stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. That's so important that we be constantly reminding ourselves that forgiveness in Christ is readily available and that there is no sin apart from rejecting Christ. There is no sin that God cannot and is not ready and willing and able to forgive. That's tremendous. We ought to preach that to ourselves every day. So in these situations, um, 
remember to do that. Recognize that forgiveness and restoration are offered to you in Christ now. And really for all of us, if there's help that's needed, uh, you know, marriage is tough. In some cases, people want to liken it to a battlefield. That shouldn't be the reference, but sometimes it is. Um, it's tough. We are all sinners, and we all need help. We all need to be challenged in these ways. So one of the things that I, and I mentioned it already, but any of the leaders or pastoral staff or elders would love to help you in any ways that we all can. And I think one of the greatest blessings and gifts from Christ is that he has given us his church and given us his church to help each one of us live pleasing lives for his glory and his kingdom. And so we can do that. We can do that now in our marriages. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that these are weighty issues. It is, it is a challenge. We see this, we see the challenges both from a cultural perspective that, uh, and understand that Satan is on the warpath for our marriages. But we also understand that we ourselves as sinners are the problem as well. So we pray for your help. Lord, we pray that you would grant us a proper biblical understanding, that you would help us to grasp the gravity of the things that we've talked about, and that you would use us in this room and in this church, in our marriages, for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, we recognize that there are those that are here that aren't married yet. So we pray that you would teach and train them, help them to avail themselves of resources that are available. And Lord, we know that there are people with pasts, with baggage and other challenges that, that have to be addressed. And so we pray for wisdom. We pray for strength. We pray for your Holy Spirit's work in the lives and hearts to navigate through those circumstances and situations. And Lord, in all of this, as we recognize that we are so flawed in so many ways, we stand amazed at Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help these truths to resonate in our hearts, to change us, and to cause us to live for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.